0: hope you're having a fantastic day and a wonderful week. Welcome to another episode of We Aren't Dead Yet. I'm Emily Armstrong, creator of the TTRPG system, Quests and Quarrels, as well as the settings Beckettville, Culinary Punk, and Elder Space. I'm here with Dazzle Cat.
1: Hello, I am Dazzle Cat. I am the creator of the TTRPG Needy Bones, as well as the worlds of Pangorio and Hypnosium. I am here with Sappho.
2: Hi there. My name is Safa Burnell. I'm a best selling cyberpunk and mythpunk author and an editor for a small press. I've been in the fiction sphere for more than 15 years. And I'm going to remind everybody today, don't worry. There's always something we can do because we, we aren't, aren't dead yet. yet. Hot scoop literary prize is given to somebody who used chat GPT. This just in hot news an award ceremony for one of Japan's most prestigious literary prizes, uh, went to Rie Kudan, the novelist behind the Tokyo Tower of Sympathy, who then admitted she used ChatGPT. Not just ChatGPT for working out some things in the outline and the research, but she quoted verbatim the sentences generated by AI. I am shook.
0: Yeah, she said, quote... I made active use of generative AI like ChatGPT, in writing this book, unquote, and then further said, quote, I would say about 5% of the book quoted verbatim the sentences generated by AI, unquote.
2: On one hand, I'm really glad that she copped to it. Like, that's the thing I think that needs to happen with AI, you know, whether you're going to use it or not, you need to let people know. Like, I think that's the biggest thing. I think the biggest problem in literature and the arts right now is is twofold. Uh, number one, you've got companies who are using data sets that they're not technically allowed copyright wise to use, or they don't have permission to use. That's, you know, when you have, you know, artists' work and auto- artists' body of works and, and authors' body of works being input into an AI without that artist or author's permission, unless it is outside of the creative copyright, then that's just what's going to happen. But if it's within private, domain then obviously there needs to be things like compensation to artists and creators and there also needs to be permission that's the number one issue boom there you go we could talk about that another time in ad nauseum length number two if you use ai you need to cop to it you need to say you used it because the biggest issue is going to be when people use ai and then hide it yeah,
0: I don't hide that I like to use AI early in the process when I'm creating things just to kind of use as a sounding board with some ideas, but nothing will make it from, from any AI into a final product now. Like I with, with my art in 2023, I made a very clear post. I had a article all about how I create art, but I was very open about how that whole process was. I was clear that it did use AI in the process. But I've since now in 2024, I'm um, going forward without AI in the art process. But it should be without saying that it should not make it into your published literature.
2: Yeah. You know, if you want to use something like, you know, chat GPT or perplexity, uh, perplexity AI, uh, AI was, is one where it lists its sources. You know, if you want to use that for research, I mean, obviously, you have to remember that AI are fallible, they are not perfect, and that you always have to double check your research anyway. But if you type in, oh, man, you know, what are some things that happened in 1924 that I could add into a novel, and it gives you a list of things that you can then investigate, I'm totally okay with that. I have no issue with the use of AI as that kind of small part of the larger picture, but you damn well better be writing your own prose. You know, if you're using it for an outline, that's one thing. If you are using it as a research tool, you definitely need to check to make sure that it's accurate, you know, because it might not be. It's only got access to what it's learned. There's a good chance it's not going to be, especially because
0: stuff like if you're using free ChatGPT, it's not up to date. So you really need to check your sources and you need to be checking with real people and running your work by
2: real people just to make sure that you're not doing anything too wild, you know? <laughs> or just not doing anything too pedantic either because, you know, it is as it is as it is. It is a collection of data that uses algorithms to find the median line. It's more like predictive text where it's just doing what the
0: next most likely word is.
2: At a later date, we will actually go into the ethics of different AI and the ethics of how data is put into the system because it is something I am fascinated with. And yes, I do understand that a lot of AI have difficulties at the corporate level in figuring out where to source the information and what to do with that. I think part of that, too, is whether or not it is a self-learning algorithm. Because if you have a self-learning AI, it's not going to stop at, oh, this might hurt this person's feelings. They didn't immediately consent to having their information used. It doesn't know to think that. It just thinks data, 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 expand, 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 extrapolate, expand. And so we have to think of the alien nature of something like AI. So we'll go into that at a later date. And obviously, we want to make sure that you know that our stance is that any data used by something like an AI for generative purposes or anything should be something that it has permission to use as a background piece of information. If someone like Margaret Atwood wants to opt out of having her works used to train AI, that should be respected. And if somebody else is like, yeah, throw my stuff on there, I want to be immortal, then that should also be respected. For me, especially as a futurist creator and somebody who writes cyberpunk where the bond between artificial intelligence and humanity is incredibly gritty and incredibly rebellious and incredibly present, I am interested in theoretical advances technology can provide. Can there be ways to properly use AI in an ethical capacity to minimize workflow time, to pare certain things down, to be more creative? You know, are there ways to use these technologies as they come up, both created now and created in the future to expand the way that artists work? Absolutely. And I do think that we need to be aware of those things, but those are conversations within the AI community and within the greater community at large that we need to start having now. And we are having them, but we started having them too late. I mean, when people talk about, hey, why did this company use my novel to train their AI? I mean, I get it. I get it. I have been on the negative impact of that road. And it is something that needs to be put forward, but we can't even decide on universal human rights. How are we supposed to decide on how people handle a book? You know, this world is an amazing place and the internet connects us all in such a beautiful and fantastic way. And we have never been more connected as a global society than now. But with that comes the realization there is no monocultural identity on the planet there is no monocultural or monosocietal way of looking at the world and when you're attempting to find universals you're going to find that it's incredibly difficult if not impossible to do so because as much as we all have you know vastly the same gene codes vastly the same genetics vastly the same experience of being born growing up becoming an adult and then eventually fading away we are not the same nor will we ever be and so what do you do with those differences how do you find the universals that you can agree on and then what do you do knowing that those universals are only going to be for a certain percentage of people and not the whole and that's just human nature baby that's just the nature of the game let's jump into our main topic for today we're going to start with harvest of horrors today (laughs) For those of you listening who want to know why we're giggling about this, please consider going on Substack and becoming one of our lasting legends, people who help fund this beautiful project that we are working on at We Aren't Dead Yet because we have exclusive conversations that happened that are not going to appear in this episode that you can listen to, but you will be able to listen to on Substack in the paid only section. So that's why we're giggling. October 2023 we released macabre and monstrous a horror anthology of eldrick space myth monsters and a forest of frights and it is a wonderful collection of short stories that'll titivate and scare i love it we all love it we all had a lot of fun at making it happen, uh, the kind of fun that leaves you with a few more gray hairs by the time you're done with it. And today we wanted to go over the method that we all had in developing our short stories for the Macabre and Monstrous collection, because all of us have different approaches to the writing of fiction, I myself as a cyberpunk and mythpunk author, Emily as an incredible world builder, and Daz as a game master with over 30 years of experience. And so all of us coming from a different place, we still all wrote shorts fiction, and every single story rocks, sucks.
1: So you have a TTRBG world build that is a tabletop role-playing game world build, and you want to write stories in it. Well, where do all the stories happen in your TTRPG? It happens in the adventures that you build your world around. So you have an adventure in your world, and you're all excited about it, and you want to write a story about it. Well, the first thing you need to keep in mind is an adventure is simply a plot presented in a series of plot points, but now you want to write a story. This means you have to think about okay now i'm going to make some characters and put it through my adventure that is where your story begins and so when you when you're and when you get to actually writing it like i did for harvest of horrors there are certain things you really need to make sure you do first as going from game master to writing the first thing i did was develop the villain this is really important and i could easily do this because the villain and an adventure is very key they're the ones who are causing all the troubles obstacles and all that that the players have to go through to get to resolve whatever issue that the villain created and so that's already pre-generated you got kind of that but you have to define it even more to figure out what you're going to do with the story so for instance i decided right then that this was going to be the origin story of my villain but not told by the villain themselves, but through the eyes of their future nemesis, the main character of the story, the protagonist. So I developed Eichel, my villain, and his minions, which were already kind of you know simple parts of the adventure. I just developed them a little bit more to fit in the story. And then I moved on to my protagonist, my hero, Tenya, a young wizardess in training. I needed her to be that developed because she's going to be the nemesis, but she has to start somewhere. I further created other characters and things in the story that aren't directly related to Aichil and his machinations that he's doing simply to develop her reason for being in a place and difficulties when she finally gets the face off against Aichil.
2: So the character of Myra, With Tenya, you know, I remember when we were doing Harvest of Horrors, the question was, who's the main character? Is it Tenya or is it Myra? Because um, Aunt Myra was fantastic, too. Like,
1: holy crap. I deliberately took Myra as the mentor character in the Hero's Journey to put in here for the young Tenya. So she's helping to cultivate Tenya into the more sophisticated wizardess, giving her the courage to, in the future, do future things. But that was her point. Tanya is young. She looks up to this aunt. And in this moment, she's becoming more adult herself and facing dilemmas. And she has Myra there with her.
2: Myra was our Aunt Yoda. Aunt Yoda, yeah. She was basically Belana Troy, meets Aunt Yoda. You know, it was fantastic. And I say that as the person who's currently uh, narrating the audiobooks. And my Aunt Myra voice is just, well, you know, it's, oh heavens it's 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 Bellana Troy you know like all of a sudden you've got Majel Roddenberry doing something and, and this is just oh my goodness I gotta make the buns all right let's keep going now like I love on like I love that character I love her bombasticism I also love her homeliness because it's a homemaker after she spent, you know, twenty five years going out there adventuring. We're definitely going to need a uh, mini series of prequels for Aunt Myra. <laughs> Please let me voice Aunt Myra as a young Myra who's going around attempting to like slaughter MacGuffins and save princesses <laughs> and get magic swords.
1: <laughs> and after creating all these interesting characters and things to to embellish. Tanya's uh, backstory and and really flesh her out a little. Then I just took Tanya with her perspective through all the points of the adventure that I had made, and so therefore, the the adventure was tailored to the character, just like the game master tailors their adventures to their players, because all your players have characters with backstories, and your job as a as a GM is to try to get them immersed into the world by matching their backstories into the the adventures they have along the way in this particular case it was Tanya's backstory meshing in and so it changed the flavor of some of the plot points the essentials happened but in a flavor that was uh, geared towards Tanya since this was basically her rpg experience rather than a whole party of four
0: When you're playing a TTRPG, you're generally going to have around four people that are going on the adventure with you. But that's not always the case when you're bringing it over into a short story, because having four main characters in a short story, I won't say it's
2: impossible because I'm sure people have done it, but it would be very difficult. (laughs) Speaking as an editor who spent more than 10 years in the slush pile looking almost exclusively at short fiction. I can tell you the sheer amount of times where I've seen more than one main character in a story actually succeed. I can count on two fingers. Mm -hmm. I highly suggest that even
0: if you are bringing a adventure and boiling it down into a short story that you try to arrange for it to be not a full party, That's just going to be too overwhelming for a short story. I think what Daz did where it's really the one main character and then you've got this other kind of side character working as a mentor. Totally works. Totally. But having a full party go through it for a short story is going to be way, way overwhelming.
2: (laughs) Yeah, because you only have to concentrate so far on certain characters within a short story. And you know, I did a workshop called Asset Economy on short fiction. It is available on my Ko-fi, my Substack, and also on my website, Safa Brunel. A shout out if you want me to do that workshop again, uh, you can go on Safa Burnell and get more information on that. Uh, But the point of short fiction is that it's got an economy of narrative. An economy of narrative, economy of setting, it's got an economy of character because you only have so many words you are working with, you know, a fairly short amount of words. And something like Harvest of Horrors, it's a novelette. It is getting to be something that you can have a little bit of complexity to, But not a ton because you're going to dilute it. It's like, okay, I poured myself a beautiful glass of Okanagan Valley 2019 red wine. You know, it's got Cab Franc. It's got Malbec. It's got Cabernet Sauvignon. If you start using 17 other grapes in there, it's going to muddle the blend, and then if you take that beautiful glass of red wine that you have distilled down, that you have brought down into this wonderful elixir where people are able to just kind of concentrate on two or three or four things, pour in a bunch of sparkling water, all of a sudden you've lost it. You've lost the plot. You're not going to be able to concentrate enough. Your your readers are not going to be able to attach to as many things because it's too complex. That's not to say that readers are somehow dumb or stupid. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that a reader wants to know who they're supposed to be rooting for. And when you start adding in too many characters and too much complexity within something like a short story, then you're going to lose them because they're just going to be like, well, I, I could go over here. I could go over there. I could You've shot yourself in the foot for not distilling down to the essence of the fiction that you want to create. And so that's one thing I liked about Harvest of Horror. We concentrated very heavily on the experience of Tanya and Aunt Myra. And then were there some tangentials around? Yes. But they were more of background noise. Except for uh, the person who was a plot point, who I'm not going to mention because spoilers, you need to read the book. Books2read.com. That's books2 number 2 read.com slash Makam and Monsters. More information on we aren't dead yet. or vertimedia.ca slash Wadi.
0: Yeah, and I think if we had one more character that we needed to focus on in that, it would have completely thrown off the balance in
2: the story. Yay! Daz is <laughs> like, woohoo! Well, I just remember when we were editing Harvest of Horrors and it's just, you know what? I Chill has this real visceral nature to him. Like, the demon tree has, the fact that I'm saying demon tree and then has any characterization at all is incredible. He has this vivaciousness to him. He has this villainy to him. He's got this full-blooded character feel. And then, That's when Daz informed me, TTRPG layman that I am. Well, yeah, obviously, as a game master, I obviously start with the villain. And it was just like, click. (gasps) Why are you not writing these stories from the perspective of the villain? I want to see your short fiction from the perspective of the villains. I do. I want to see it because it's going to blow three quarters of fantasy literature out of the water. I think with TTRPG in
0: general, you find that Because the villain is almost the driving force behind the adventure most of the time, coming from TTRPG and going into a short story, writing from the point of the villain is such a cool concept. I would love to see some stuff from Daz in that vein.
1: There might be some in the works. Not that I'm saying anything.
2: (laughs) Oh, man. No, I'm really looking forward to that. Because I think that Daz's method of starting with the villain, it's such a game master thing. It is such a TTRPG kind of game design thing. Uh, Because it makes sense to me when I look at it from a literary standpoint that you would want your hero in those kinds of stories to be more of an every person kind of figure because the person engaging with that media is inserting some form of character that they have created into that world. And so the villain is that gigantic force of nature, that huge compelling thing, and then everything else is happening because of what the characters do on their own. In a literary standpoint, like if I was just telling somebody that has nothing to do with TTRPGs, is that the way that I would tell them to start figuring out their book or their story? Not necessarily. Because I'd get them to start with the protagonist. I would get them to start with, you know, the thing that I say, and I said this in Asset Economy, on the printable that you can purchase on Kofi and on Staffordrunel.com, it's right on there in big, gigantic, bold letters. What do you want the reader to feel or realize by the end of the work? Start there. Start with what you want that reader to finish that story and go, wow. I just learned this or wow, I just got entertained. Start there and what do you need to do? What kind of character do you need to build? What kind of setting? What kind of plot do you need to get them there? If you are coming to this from TTRPGs, if you have a TTRPG world build and you want to develop short stories to get people interested in your setting, absolutely do the Daz method of starting with your villain and building an adventure point for point. It works, it's stable, it's sound, it's incredible. It's something that you're probably more comfortable doing than somebody who just writes stories. Somebody who just writes stories as in literature, they're not going to have the same perspective when it comes to building a short story. as Somebody who's used to building campaigns, adventures, and one-shots and TTRPGs. That's just the nature of the game. It's not that one is better than the other. They're both on equal ground. And if you are more comfortable going with the villain and then extrapolating out from there, that is fantastic. And I want to see your work. Come see my streams every Thursday at 1 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. slash daylight time. To- but as I was saying, when it comes to developing short fiction outside of a TTRPG world build, usually you want to start with what you want that reader to feel or inhabit or learn or just find out by the end of the
1: story. Can I be honest here? Yeah, go for it. I have no, I still to this day have no idea what the heck that is in writing because I my brain just doesn't see that. I will see it in my character's after I'm done, I will not see it or feel it during. Does that make
2: Okay. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense Daz. And I think there's a lot of writers out there who feel the same way that you do. And so when I say that you need to know in a short story, when you're approaching a short story, now I'm not talking about a novel series, a serial or something with a lot, you know, tens of thousands of words. I'm talking about a short story here, something under 10,000 words. When you're going into short fiction, if you don't know why the story is going to exist, oftentimes what happens is that authors ramble. They end up going through seven different rabbit trails and finding another's plot line and picking up two different characters that are superfluous to the main point. And by the end of it, they will stumble upon some form of point that a reader will happen upon after the fact, once it's published, and then stick to and go, oh, wow, I really wish that this author would have been more clear on that. In a short story, a short story is one moment of time. It is one exchange. You should know when you're writing something that's 4,000 words, where are you going to take it? What is the main point? Because otherwise, what happens is you end up with these bloated stories that never get to the point soon enough, and then end up being very clouded. Because there's multiple ways that you could interpret certain things, and it's not heteroglossic specifically, but it's just that there's multiple dropped storylines kind of set in the grass a little bit like fake stakes. When it comes to a novel series... It's a little different. You can go the cerebral way of being like, what do I want readers to discover by the end of this novel? This is something that I do with the Judge of Mystic Saga, where the whole point of the Judge of Mystic Saga, the thing that I have to remember going into writing Book of Revels in Gagap, which is where I'm at in the Quartet, is that this is about a broken family that becomes whole again. That is what it's about otherwise you have personally witnessed me over the period of a year and a half being confused practically deranged fighting myself hating life because i kept losing the focus that this entire series of novels this entire quotet is about finding family after a family is broken It is about repairing the family that can be repaired, and it is about finding the family that really deserves to be part of your life in a very secure and wholesome way. And it is about a character who starts off in disorder, in his lonely paces. Caleb starts off very detached from everybody and everything other than Tuya, and then goes through the entire series of novels and by the end of it becomes that pinnacle and crux point of a family. Because for me, writing the myth punk series with all its battles and everything like that is really cool. The adventure part is really cool. But it was about me discovering this fictional way to suture a broken family when I myself as a person will never suture mine. And so, once I remember that that's what this novel series is about, I can push away all of those side quests, all of those side projects, all of those other things that might be great, they might be fantastic, but they're not for this. And so, when I say that you need to know what the readers are going to walk away with, at least your intention of what the readers are going to walk away with, because reader response critique, readers are going to find out whatever they're going to find. But... If you have Blackstone and you want to make sure that by the end of Blackstone, these readers in one way deal with grief, right alone with Fox and have a really cool adventure, then that's what you need to make sure is in the plot. And if something is not immediately dragging you back to, is this a really cool adventure part or is it dealing with grief? If it's not one of those two things, it goes into another project. It doesn't get trashed in the bin. It just gets put in a different folder. You need to know what the story is for because most of the time, when you go to commercially present a work, a reader is gonna go, great, why would I read it? Because there's millions of works published in this world. Thousands published each year, more and more now with the democratization of self-publishing. We are getting inundated with more books than anybody could ever read in a lifetime every single year and you are telling them to read yours. Why? If you don't know what it is you intend that reader to experience when they're reading your book, they are not going to know to read it. The likelihood is they're not going to take the chance. I
0: think that this not only plays into when you're doing short stories, I think this is something that you need to keep in mind when you're doing most creative media. For me, I kind of fall in this weird space where I feel like Seth has got the literary, Daz has the TTRPG, but I kind of float between them. I kind of, my thing is more multimedia. And I think that that why question should always be in your mind when you are creating something for public consumption. The people that are consuming your content may not always see the same why. They might make their own judgments and uh, assumptions about why, but I think as long as you have that always in your mind, you'll be okay. For world building, a lot of us create a meta, and that is our why. But you want to keep that central idea, the focus, and always keep coming back to it. If anything is not sticking with that focus flick it off to the side and come back to it afterwards that's with everything with world building with literature it's really good to keep in mind
1: and so what's the what about uh eldry
2: space how did you develop that how did you make that happen for me
0: i'm not think i'm gonna i'm gonna make a spooky thing here like it just happened
1: you embraced the horror and just wrote it like you do I'm, I'm- You have more of a pantser
2: kind of way about you. You start with just this initial nugget of an idea and then you see where it goes. Uh, but at the same time, you had the idea that this was going to be a piece of horror fiction. So there were certain things that were inevitably going to end up being there, including the cosmic horror and the body horror that we end up seeing in Salvage's Loop. And yet you started with the experience of a lead-in where we could first connect to Corvin at a baseline. And so I find that especially in horror, if you don't show your protag in a moment of calm or a moment of rest, we don't know how to identify what they're feeling later on. Because that's our baseline. If I didn't show Caleb Malthusen as being this kind of steady guy initially in the first chapter of Char and Ash later on when he goes explosive, nobody would know that that's a big deal. And I think with Corvin, you started Salvador's Loop off with him just waking up. Yeah, I think that this is something that I try to do in
0: a lot of my work in general, not just what I'm writing. Years ago, when I started writing music and composing music, in one of my music theory courses, our professor mentioned that there needs to be moments of silence, and that they're just as important as any sounds that are created. Because that, as you said, is your baseline, you need to set a baseline, there needs to be calm in order for anything other than that calm to have an impact. If everything is always at 100%, you're always full action, guns blazing. You're never going to build any kind of excitement because you're always at that top level of excitement. I think in writing especially, you need to show, like you said, what What the baseline normal for that character is with fell plumes when they start to pick at their sleeve, you know, that that's not just their normal, like everyday behavior. That's, they're indicating something, something they're nervous. They're not comfortable. You need those, those quiet moments and you need those in order to have something that really scares somebody and builds tension in any sort of way. You really need to have those quieter character baseline moments that you can then kind of twist later and play with and those are important to building tension and creating any kind of spooky setting is putting people in their discomfort when i was working on the meta for a world like elder space everybody's a little grittier there specifically somebody like corvin who is In his later years, he's not human, so he's past a 100. He's been rocking around for over a century, and he's a scavenger. He's just kind of taking people's stuff that they're not using anymore, and he's a little grumpy. He's jaded. It's a little risky, I guess, making uh, your main character like that. Some people might just not enjoy it, but I think I managed to come up with a character that was at least entertaining that uh people tended to like
2: so with corvin he starts off as a pretty scuzzy villain you know he starts us as the office this kind of scuzzy guy that's like oh look a car crash i'm a raid it <laughs> i am to steal the shit in their trunk like that's not exactly the most luscious and heroic paladin like behavior in, in the world But he starts off as like, ooh, I'm a salvager. There's probably dead guys. Well, I'm wearing a bio suit. Let's go find their shit. By the end of Salvager's Loop, you can't help but love the guy. And not only can't help but love the guy, you can't help but find him, at least in his way, incredibly heroic. He's kind of the anti-Carolee. Carolee starts off as this, like, religious soccer mom who's just raising her kid in 1990s Ireland and loving her husband and working a part-time job at the Butchers into a, uh, you know, we'll talk about Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, but into a murderous bitch. Like, she goes (laughs) from this, like, wholesome wife and mother and Catholic girl to, um, oh, I must stab him in his neck. You know, like, she goes... Very anti-heroic. Corvin starts off as the asshole that's like, oh crash! <laughs> Let's steal their stuff. And then turns into the hero who saves a bunch of lives. It's the, he's the opposite of the anti hero. And I love that. And it's all horror. And you get to see him and you kind of fall in love with this gritty guy with a bad hip who's you know needs to get a little bit of an ocular implant upgrade because his eyes are fritzing. He's gritty. He's been through it. He's been through the trenches and come out the other side. And I think the thing that sort of humanizes him a little is the fact that when you get to his initial motivations, it's something as simple as maybe I could spend the money on myself to make me a more comfortable chair. Maybe I could retire. He could have a meal that didn't come from a freeze-dried package. Holy crow. You know, his desires and wants are so normal. And so relatable that it makes it easier to see that he's just trying to make it out there. You know, and it's a bit scuzzy when he's like, oh, look, a crash. Let's steal their shit because they're dead. That's the way it is. And you can kind of understand that that's the way it is. It is a cold, hard, ceaselessly belligerent universe out there. And he wants some padding on his chair. You fall in love with this character of Corvin, and yet it's in this setting, which is supremely cosmic horror and supremely body horror, and that's intense. And I think for me, when we look at something like The Lamia or Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, I have a different view of horror because for me, horror is relational. I'm talking more about the relation between... Characters who are on fairly equal, if not almost equal, sitting. Going into something like the Lamia, yes, it is a monster story. You know, there's Caleb Malthuson wounded down for the count and running away from the Lamia that is attempting to murder him on the streets. And yet the true horror of the Lamia is not that there is this half woman, half snake, eternally lustful, monster that wants to eat his spleen that is one part of it but that is only the surface level the actual horror of that story is the fact that caleb realizes how that monster was created who created that monster and what that means for himself and his daughters
0: yeah i think you take on more realistic horror Even though it's using these fictional creatures and these mythical creatures, it's still a close to home kind
2: of realistic horror. And that shakes people in a different way. Yeah, it's not cosmic. It's not going with, you know, kind of the instincts of humanity from the beginning of time. It is something relational. It is a man's having to go home wounded and needing help. And his teenage daughter and his daughter in her early 20s are standing there and he has to somehow deal with the fact that the mother of his teenager committed a cardinal sin and turned a needy woman in crisis into a monster for her own ends. And that comes with a particular kind of fear. What does he do? How does he raise his daughter's how does he be that stalwart man when he's also very keenly aware that for the woman who turned into a Lamia, men failed her. Society failed her. She herself was in need and pleading for help and nobody listened. And so he has to own the fact that as a blonde haired blue eyed, white male within the society, he needs to figure out a way to be able to listen to these people when they need help. And he needs to be able to figure out a way to make sure that there are systems in place to help those who need it. And that that is the job of society as well. And so, you know, I think when it comes to things like justice and social justice and social commentary, the Lamia is the most visceral, real-world example of social commentary I've ever written. Will I write other things in that vein again? I don't know. Probably not. It's not necessarily my genre. You know, it's not necessarily the thing that I want to do in my prose. I tend to be a little bit more escapist, even though I deal with things like, you know, the fracturing of family in the Judge of Mystic saga and how family can come back together after a while. But the Lamia is a horror story about a monster that is trying to eviscerate him. It is a horror story about realizing that his ex is creating monsters just to get back at anybody she can. And it is... Also, the thing that we ended the collection with because it ends on this really sweet moment of family coming together. You know, his oldest daughter basically helping him into bed after he's wounded and them talking together and having, you know, a moment of family connectiveness. And so it was important for us to end the collection on sort of a sweet moment on the dawn coming into morning. You know, it was important for us to end the collection with a little bit of a whew, you know and some fun and some comedy and things like that just to kind of leave people with a good taste in their mouths but the lamia was very interesting when it came to that kind of thing because i think i wrote the original script for the lamia at a time where i realized i needed to apologize for starting a fantasy collection of stories based in canada uh featuring a blonde hair blue-eyed white guy And somehow I needed to make good and say, he's not just a member of the patriarchy, he is also uh, an ally to every good thing in the world. Eventually, he figures it out. He's grown with the times. And he's learned. And by the time he's raising both Soraya and Charisma, his daughters, he's like, okay, I need something here and like in the Book of Rebels, which happens in the middle of the Lemia story. So the Lemia story basically happens in the middle of the Book of Revels timeline. Something happens with Charisma and he's like, this is out of my league. I need women. This this 13-year-old girl needs to talk to another woman. And the first thing he does is drive her to a place with other women that he knows and trusts to be able to handle that. And he goes, there you go, get out of the car. (laughs) And that to me was really important almost to prevent a idea that my fiction is out of place or is irrelevant in the current cultural landscape of the time. Now, something like Whiskey and Sinner's Blood is a completely different feel because we are talking about the 1990s in Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. In it, we have a completely different kind of horror. We have the fall of Carolee from just this somewhat patient, vivacious woman whose life did not go the way that she planned. She ended up being a teen pregnancy who got married, before the baby was born to cover up her shame. And she'd better be okay with being a wife and mother because that's what she is now. It's the story of her husband coming home when their child is 10 with a whiskey bottle going, Carolee, dear, I need you to sit down and listen to me. I I did something. Oh, my God. And him finally admitting that he had the fairy queen fix their son. And now the fairy queen wants their son as payment. And what do you do? And so, Carolee's fall is one, this idea of like, well, what's, you know, that tension of what's the fairy queen going to do with him? What's the fairy queen going to do with Liam? What is going on here? Like, what's happening? You know, you've got that, you know, you've got Carolee and her husband that are having a relationship that's not necessarily the best relationship in the world. And then you have the fall of what Carolee does with all of this information. And it was important for me when it came to Whiskey and Sinner's Blood to really show an almost Shakespearean level of anti-heroic downfall. I wanted something more on the lines of Othello. I wanted something more on the lines of Macbeth. I wanted something more on the lines of Paradise Lost. I wanted to know by, by the end of the story, Carolee's fall was an actively participated event. It wasn't something passive that happened to her that she just kind of came across it was something that she was very actively involved with and that she made the decision herself to undergo. And to me, that's the horror. The horror of Whiskey and Sinner's Blood is that humanity, this unassuming mother of one, is somehow capable of the depravity and the depths that Carolee went to for her child. Yeah. And even-
0: Though your situations, while they do go to these fantastic places like with the Fairy Queen, that kind of situation at its core really happens to people. As somebody who consumes a lot of true crime, as part of my (laughs) – say it's part of my horror research, but it really is. It's real world horrors like in true crime stuff that's really – a big inspiration for a lot of things that I do, and it feels like it fits well into the realistic sort of horror that you see in Whiskey and Sinner's Blood. So I really enjoyed them. I thought they were fantastic stories. Lumia is just heartbreaking, and Whiskey and Sinner's Blood made me so angry. You don't want to say that you side with them, but the whole time like you're yelling, like, Carolee, don't do that. But like, I understand why you're doing that, but that's the worst choice. <laughs>
2: <laughs> For a vast majority of my academic career in literature, I was deeply steeped in the backgrounds of English literature from the Epic of Gilgamesh to about 50 years after Shakespeare. That is academically speaking what I spent seven years of my life steeped in every day of the year. And so when it comes to things like building an anti-hero, I go back to Dunn, I go back to Shakespeare, and I go back to Kid. For me, when it came to Carolee, I wanted to have that anti-heroical fall. I wanted to have that moment where you see that it was her own active choice. And I think for me, that's what a good anti-hero is. And something that I would say, if you're developing your own short fiction, here's how. You make sure that your fiction feels real. Number one, your protagonists need to make active choices that affect their world. It is useless to say your protagonist is bumbling through life and that things happen to them, but they don't have agency to deal with them or they can instantly get through it for somehow. You can get into things like Mary Sue's and all that kind of thing. That's not the kind of fiction that I like to tell. I like to tell real fiction where you're dealing with things that feel a little, at least a little bit authentic or plausible to the experience that people have. The experience that people have includes things like not being perfect and includes things like making decisions. And yes, there's a lot of indecision in culture and there's a lot of indecision in people. And there's a lot of indecision in society itself because people allow others to make decisions for them and then they just live with those consequences.
1: Is it wrong if I uh, say that I wasn't reading like, oh, no, don't do that. I was like, oh, yes, rise, villain, rise. <laughs> and I was like, really, really eager for that moment when she made that that final story. I really was. I was really like, where is it? Where-?
2: There's going to be that kind of mutual excitement. Some people are going to be like, yes, Carolee, do the wrong thing. Rise, yeah, villain, <laughs> go, bitch, go. And there's going to be people who are like, no, think of your child.
0: <laughs> think of your son. I had both of those feelings the whole time. You're like, Carolee, you have a son. You can still, there's time. You can still fix this. Don't do anything too stupid. But you're also like, okay, but get the bigger knife. Like, if you're going to do this. Yeah, you know, you can see it
2: coming. Chekhov's gun happens right in the first couple scenes. And then we're dealing with what happens after that. I think for me, too, there's a couple things about whiskey and sinner's blood. Number one, you know, I've talked about this before. It's the first story other than the short story Rust which was published in 2012 in Macro Microcosm Literary Journal. Whiskey and Sinners Blood was the first story I ever wrote in the Judge of Mystics universe. It really was the start of the entire Judge of Mystics world. And now that world is is hugely expansive, it's multiple novels, it's a upcoming audio drama called Waxwing, it's, you know, TTRPG one-shots like Top shelf and cocoa craze and the whole thing, and it's going to be this incredible expanded myth punk universe. But originally, this is what the story was about. The story was Carolee and what Carolee does when she's faced with something monstrous. And yet, when I was this younger author in my 20s writing the story of Carolee, never having been in a long standing romantic relationship, I was never married at that point. You know, I, I did not know what it was like to live with somebody romantically. I was not old enough, wise enough, or experienced enough to tell that story. It wasn't until I got married and spent a few years. Now, this is going to sound weird coming from somebody that's talking about a horror story.
0: (laughs) No, i was thinking this, i know exactly what you're gonna say and I was thinking the same about fell plumes I was like I don't think fell plumes would have been as good if i wasn't married and had the experience of that relationship all sides of the relationship and stuff but continue
2: yeah it's really difficult to tell the day by day story of a relationship if you've never been in one if you've never been in a long-standing relationship if you've never lived with your significant other that's going to be an incredibly difficult mountain to climb not to say you can't climb it just to say that it is intrinsically going to be incredibly more difficult to do Because you have less authentic experience in life to draw from. And drawing from your life as a writer does not necessarily mean remembering conversations and writing them down word for word verbatim. It means that you've experienced that sense of what happens in Whiskey and Sinner's Blood where Carolee is making dinner and she's trying to get the vegetables in the stew pot and her husband walks in the door and he's got a bottle of whiskey and he's done his hair and he's brushed his teeth and you know something's up. Okay, what is it? What is it? This is weird. You don't normally come in here with gifts. An alcohol telling me to sit down and have a drink. What's going on? Oh, no, nothing. Is, can't a man just, you know, can't a man just love his wife? Nope. What's going on? I know you. Like, what's happened? What did you do? That part of it, that fight between Coleman and Carolee, is now the bedrock of this novella. It is the bedrock, it is the foundation of Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, and I would never have been able to write it if I hadn't have had the experience of being married for five years.
0: Yeah, exactly. With Fell Plumes, I think a turning point, I guess you could say, in that is when things kind of get very cold, having that additional experience with actually living with another person in a relationship married is definitely a different thing. So you can absolutely appreciate and sort of understand uh, situations that you haven't been in. But I think that the connection level changes completely when it is something you've experienced.
2: The thing that was missing, you know, because I shipped Whiskey and Sinner's Blood under a couple of different titles throughout the years to probably a good 40 different literary journals and it never got picked up. And then when we were approaching Macabre and Monstrous, I went, well, I've got this story. Maybe it's time. And then I took another look at it and went, oh, wait a minute, here we go. And then Whiskey and Sinner's Blood came out of it. And this new draft with Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, I think, is one of the most profound works that I've ever written. I really do honestly think that.
0: It's fantastic. It really is. The dialogue that you've written for for that story is incredible. Uh, Between all the characters, I won't spoil anything, but between all characters and Carolee is just fantastic. I love the characterization of Carolee. Just even like from a short story standpoint alone, not even talking about the horror, it's a fantastic short story. But the way that you've also brought in the horror is chef's kiss. It's so good. (laughs) so good.
2: Oh, I love it. I still need to record the audiobook for it. And that's going to be interesting because it's going to be emotionally intense. I can already tell I'm like, oh, it's going to be, this is, this one's going to hurt. Oh man. Uh, but it's, I think the way to kind of bring somebody into something like magic realism, which is what I would define Whiskey and Sinner's Blood as, you know, it is myth punk, it is a work of myth punk, but it is most realistically magic realism. Magic exists, trolls exist, things, you know, fairy queens exist, but we are very much grounded in reality for a lot of it, especially in the 1990s in Ireland. And I don't go into too much of the political situation in Ireland because that's not my place to talk about. Uh, my place to talk about is the relationship between Caroline and Coleman and what they do about their child. Liam being wanted by the Fairy Queen because Cole made a deal that he cannot break. And what Carolee does with her perceptions, what she does, you know, in comparison to what's going on around her is the horrific part because she caused it all in herself, you know, and that was the thing I wanted to, to grip a hold of because I thought that no matter if you read horror, if you read speculative fiction, if you read magic realism, if you read myth punk, no matter what kind of fiction you read, if you are an adult who has lived with other people, You can understand at least some of the character stuff going on because it is intrinsically, in the baseline of it, a human story about the lengths a mother will go to protect her child. And then there's that one moment right in the middle, in the very specifically in the middle of the narrative, where I have her come face to face with salvation. She comes face to face with the one person who would be able to help her through this. The one person that she could come clean to and make everything okay. She comes face-to-face with that person and then, fuck you, get out of my way, time to go do my own thing. Like, it's just, that's the fall. The fall moment right there is that moment in time where she has been giving grace on a platter. She has been giving compassion and mercy on a platter. This person is there. They are divine. They are capable of helping her through all of this stuff and she knows very well who this is. And she walks away. And the best anti-heroes in all of literature are ones like King Lear. They're ones like Macbeth. They're ones like Satan in Paradise Lost who do these things to themselves and then suffer the consequences. And we see Carolee suffering the consequences of Whiskey and Sinner's Blood in the entirety of the Judge of Mystic Saga Quartet. She's in Charnash. She's in Son of Abel. She's in Book of Revels. She's in Gunungagath. She's in the entire series. And for most people reading my work, they're probably going to start with something like Char and Ash. And so they will see her in 2017 after she's already spent 20 years dealing with the repercussions of her actions. And yet here we are at Whiskey's and Sinner's Blood and this is her origin point. This is her origin story. And this is how we find out that she's really good with knives. And I love it. It's a completely different kind of horror. It's a more relational kind of horror than some of the other horror we have in here you know we've got the monster mash with harvest of horrors we've got that sort of ttrpg adventure kind of horror uh, that we have there with hl the demon tree and Tanya and aunt myra and everything that happens there i gotta say that Daz
0: really brings it on like that creature feature feel Do you get that kind of vibe when you're reading Daz's work where you're just having a good time and like, yeah, there's spooky stuff happening. There's horror in there, but you have fun when you're reading it.
2: And so you've got the creature feature. You've got this sort of campy horror in Harvest of Horrors. You've got this macabre body horror, cosmic horror down to the seat of your instinctual horror as a human being in foul plumes and salvagers loop and then you have this really relational sort of human anti-hero fallen from grace horror that you get in whiskey and sinner's blood and i'm so glad that the collection of macabre and Monsters had these different kinds of horror because horror is not you know one thing We could do a whole episode on just genres of horror.
0: I'm sure come back around Halloween and I'm sure that we will have spoken about genres of horror, how to write horror. We could go into a whole shebang about horror, Uh, but we'll keep that for Halloween.
2: (laughs) We'll keep that for Halloween and maybe we'll bring HL back out to play. (laughs) (laughs) HL being the demon tree read read harvest of horror and this is going to be our shout out moment if you enjoyed anything that we said today if you want to hear more from us if you want to uh, be part of the not dead Knights, we're going to ask you to join our substack we aren't dead yet dot dot com you can join us as a not dead Knight, or you can financially aid the growth of this channel by becoming one of our lasting legends both of you are incredibly appreciated please shout out about we aren't dead yet on social media and everywhere you are and if any of the stories seem to appeal to you at all please for the love of everything holy unholy cosmic horror and demon tree buy the freaking book (laughs) Every single rating of our book, Macabre Monsters, helps an incredible amount for the algorithms which control those platforms to raise the book in standing so it can be seen by more people.
1: Yes, let's defeat the true horror of it all. The algorithm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and with that, all you rebels, writers, and gamers, we're wrapping up another mind-bending episode of We Aren't Dead Yet, your go-to for all things TTRPG and speclet. Stay wild, curious, and keep defying the ordinary. Until next time, hit up Waddy at VredaMedia.ca slash Waddy. That's V R A E Y D A M E D I A.ca slash W A D Y. Like and subscribe, share with your friends, check out our merch store. We'll see you next week for more news, views, and hullabaloos. So keep the fires burning, the dice rolling, and the pages turning. And remember, there's always something we can do, because we We aren't aren't dead dead yet. yet.